0: Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank here from Snipers Hide. I want to thank everybody for listening. I also want to thank you guys for following. We're getting super close to that thousand followers, which is a big milestone, especially in the podcast world. Mike does a lot of background and looks at this stuff. And man, our numbers are strong. And that's all a tribute to you guys out there who are listening to us, following us, sharing us. Um, you know, so keep that up. I think I screwed up. Uh, I, I was posting when they did the format change on Sniper's Hide. Everybody was, you know, kind of like they couldn't find it. And I'm like, it's right there. What are you doing? It's crazy. And it looked like it killed the permissions or something that made it that nobody saw it. So I went in and fixed it. And the next thing you know, everybody's on Sniper's Hide and they're like, hey, there it is. Where, you know, the day before it was there. And then I missed it for like two days. Uh, admin powers, you see everything. So it gets to be kind of a pain in the neck to go through with all the different user groups and to check out the permission settings. So thanks for everybody for pointing that out. And if I get cranky, hey man, it's just, it, it, I get beat up with a lot of stuff. I mean, I get tons and tons of emails a day. Hey, this doesn't work or this. And honestly, a majority is operator error, but I do make a lot of you know mistakes not seeing these things. And because I'm on an admin account, it doesn't show up that way. But eh, if I get cranky, just tell me to calm down and, you know, whatever. <laughs> some guy actually I I I was some guy was bitching about, you know, what is this a gamer site, man? And he uh <laughs> he went and, and did a report on me cuz I told him to eat a dick. So, what what are you going to do? But um, you know, nature of the game, like I said, I you'd be surprised the amount of hate mail that I get in a given day. And then they wonder why I'll I'll be short or succinct with certain things and, and not do it. But there has been some interesting uh, questions and discussions this week about barrels. So I want to go into barrels. And the reoccurring question that comes up a lot, uh, and there's like three parts to this barrel discussion that I'll go over. Part number one is barrel life. Um, barrel life. Everybody is asking me questions on barrel life, especially because they're, you know, the new calibers that everybody's going to, the six dashers and the six millimeters. And so they want to know what your barrel life is. Well, number one, I, I've said this before, in my philosophy on it is barrels are expendable. And I'm not above changing a barrel that I don't like. You know what I mean? I, I've had several barrels over the years that I just didn't think worked the way I wanted to for, you know, one reason or another. I change them you know and, and and it's like tires on the car i just changed tires on my car of a lot more than the mileage should, should suggest but barrel life if you want to go into where we are today with that the average barrel life with these calibers and i'm throwing out a wide net here for you guys is 1500 to 3500 rounds that's where we are today if you want to get better than that 3500 rounds you got to go to a 308, okay? The other thing is everybody's pushing for speed, and that's what's reducing this barrel life down to that, you know, it's not 35, uh, like a 260 should be in the 5,000 round range, but we're pushing them so hard and fast that guys average about 25 to 3,000 rounds with like a 260, 65 Creed because they're pushing them so hard. You know the six millimeters are twenty five to fifteen hundred, depending on how hard they're pushing them. You know there there's variations and reasons you can get around it, but barrel life is not where it used to be. The last three o eight that I burnt out, that I swapped because it was toast, was twelve thousand rounds. Okay. Um, before that, I would usually change them out in the eight to ten thousand round range with a three oh eight, usually closer to ten thousand rounds. And I swapped out a bunch of them back in the day, in that zone. But the last three oh eight that I swapped out was twelve thousand rounds, and it was still shooting sub one MOA at twelve thousand rounds. You know, they've gotten better. They're making sure the the metal's more consistent in a lot of things. But now we're in them six millimeters. We're into those six fives. I mean, you know, if you're not pushing hard, 3,500 is a good number. If you can get up there, 3,000 is probably closer to where barrel people are. And I know some of the PRS guys that are definitely hunting for speed are seeing it less. So barrel life is not what I think people are expecting. So don't go into this thinking, you you know, you're going to do something really good with it. It's just not out there and it's not happening. That's the nature of the game. You you know, there's a lot of talk with the proof barrels, and I still see people putting down the carbon fibers in the proofs, man. The proofs are the gold standard for a carbon fiber barrel. Proofs work. I get it. They're expensive, but they're using a lot more expensive technology. Now, there is, and and I've yet to see it. I just haven't shot enough of it yet, even though I have three proof barrels. I, I, I mix too many things up lately. You know, shoot this, shoot that, shoot this, shoot that. I'm not on the range like I was at Rifles Only where I shot the same rifle pretty much all the time. You know, and I very rarely rotated rifles. Today, I'm rotating rifles a lot. So my it's it's hard for me to get a consistent number out of them that way. But the proofs, what you're looking at is instead of cooking that chamber area with that thinner barrel underneath, as that heat goes up into that carbon fiber... And as people talk about that carbon fiber is more or less kind of moving that air around. There's, there's air gap between the steel and the carbon fiber. What it does is it pushes that heat and thins it out. So you're not necessarily cooking one area of the barrel more than the other. The heat is a bit more uniform. So the there, There's some discussion that a proof might extend that barrel life. Now, when people talk about that, you know, extending barrel life on something that would a 2,500 round, you know, limit, they're probably only talking about f- one case of ammo extension, like 500 rounds. You know, it's not like this miracle extension with barrel life and anything like that. So, you know, don't come into this. You're going to have to spend money on barrels nowadays. I mean, it's just the way it is. And if you get a factory rifle and it's not shooting the way you want or something's up, toss it and get another one. You saved money on one end. Now you got to spend it on the other. Um, You know, that's kind of where it is. It's this laws of diminishing returns and things like that where, you know, where, where, where do you fall into the category of what's worthwhile for you versus not worthwhile for somebody else? So it's just something that you gotta look at when it comes to um the barrel life. I I again they're expendable. Um, which leads me into the next question. we we're, we're again we're talking a lot of barrel discussion this week, a lot of gain twist talk, a lot of hyper stabilizing with Jim Boatwright's article we posted. I really encourage you guys to get on Sniper's Hide and look these things up. Do a search for gain twist, do a uh in the ballistic. Look at uh, Jim Boatwright's stuff because we're seeing differences. And that brings me to another question because Frank Green brought up from Bartland was on and we were talking gain twist. And people are people are really trying to hammer down this pressure. You know, where do the pressures fall on a barrel with different calibers? And is gain twist doing anything? As Frank talked about, twist rate isn't the pressure determiner. It's that Style of landing and groove that they're finding, you can have two identical twenty four inch barrels with the same twist rate, but a, a different cut and lands and groove design, and they can see as much as hundred and fifty feet per second muzzle velocity difference and as much as eight thousand p s i uh pressure differences in just the design and like I said, Frank Green came on he did a big discussion on sniper's hide. Um, you know, Frank and Bartlin are my go-to people when it comes to barrel and discussions with barrels. I talk to those guys probably more than anybody else. And, you know, they're really that standard today on what's happening in terms of barrel technology cuz they're they're using computer controlled machines. They can do more than a lot of the majority of other companies. They're not, you know, they're not doing it like they used to. When they left Krieger, they started up their company they started from scratch. They invested money in new barrel making, uh, cutting designs, and machines, and all that stuff. They do things a little bit different than the next guy, so they're the go-to people to talk to. And as I said, it's that land and groove cut design versus twist rate. It's not the twist; it's the cut rate. So that brings us into that. Now, people were asking me about some of my favorite barrels and 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 I mention Bartland all the time. I know I do. Um just cuz a lot of people use them that I deal with. I use them. It, it's it's my like I said it's my go-to barrel right now. But they're asking me about companies and and I'll kind of go randomly. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just how it falls into my head. Um you know, on this lazy afternoon kind of deal. I'm a bit fried from software all week, man. That, that just, it's, it makes me spent to be in front of the computer like that. But like Brux, my 300 norm was a Brux. It's a hammer. It's a great shooter. I really like the Brux barrel. Then they asked me about Rock Creek. I will tell you back in the day, Rock Creek was the go-to barrel. You know, that was the one we were using with like GA precision and and all that. So I love Rock Creek barrels, you know, no, no drama at that. Then you know, there's always the discussion of Krieger. Krieger's another gold standard stuff. You know, the Bartland guys came out of there. Krieger, Krieger does things right. You know, there there are some differences in in things like that. But you're not going to go wrong when when you're looking at these name brand kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It, it's really more about your Smith than it is about that that when you're talking top tier barrel makers. You're 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 sort of splitting hairs a little bit. Yeah, anybody can put out a bad one here or there or there. And and honestly, that that when there's something wrong like that with a barrel, what tends to happen, and you hear this from the manufacturers too, it's like the metal they get isn't right. So the the machines are used to cutting at a certain resistance, and then you run into these hard and soft patches that mess with the tools. How you know how often they cut the tools or you know um sharpen the tools? I guess is one way to put it. In stuff like that, so it, it's it's when a barrel's not really shooting well, I look at it more of what did the gunsmith do, you know. And um, I saw that from my own experience, and I mentioned that at Robert Gratis, where I had to break it and in that barrel, I had to do a whole bunch of stuff to get it to finally shoot clean with any longevity. And that was because I did it on a lathe and, you know, I the reamer, my speed moving it forward was done manually, not by a CNC. Now, I mean, like you go to chamber up a barrel like mile high, you call, you call Mike at mile high, you say, Hey, I want to get a, a barrel made from my AI and have, you know, Logan or somebody in the back, spin me up a barrel. It goes into a CNC, you know, and, and like, I, I don't know if you saw the AI stuff uh, that I did. I get Weird. The videos with the machine shops are terrible. The machine shops interfere with all my my sound equipment, and and I have a hard time managing sound in in a lot of these machine shops. But they had to like put the Deuce on machine to do the barrels for Accuracy International up in upstate New York to like 25% for me even to see how fast it can uh, chamber a barrel because it's so fast. And they're consistent, you know what I mean? There's no variation compared to an old school gunsmith who does it on a lathe, who's hand chambering it in a a, a lot of ways, you know what I mean? And so that's the big thing with barrels is who does it, how they do it. I mean, that's why you're honestly seeing a lot of praise coming out of these shops, like your Patriot Valleys, your Short Action Customs, your LRIs, your Mile Highs. You know, all these guys who are doing this stuff on CNC based machines versus some of the older guys where you're seeing this sort of praise leapfrog a little bit. That's because those CNCs are consistent. You know what I mean? So you're not really gonna go wrong uh when when these guys have well established programs in there you got a CNC rifle cut barrel from Bartland, you got a CNC build from Mile High, you know you're going to have success on the other end. And that's why you don't need the break-ins, and you don't need the stuff, because even though they're using these really good technology, and it polishes up these chambers really nice with a finished reamer, you know, with a finished polish on it, because it can go so fast, you know, it's woo, spinning it. But, What it is, is, you know, like a Bartland does two hand laps with a lead slug. They have almost like a jeweler's rouge material. I mean, I never got into the spec of what that stuff is. But, you know, you're talking like a three inch lead slug on the end of a rod. They put it into this oils and the materials to, you know, get them wet. And it has a polishing agent on it. I call it jeweler's rouge. You know, to me, it's probably the same thing. They do 10 strokes per land and groove. So a 5R barrel from Bartland has 50 strokes times 2. You know, a, 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 a pre-one and then a post-one, you know. So before they get into, the you know, in the middle of the process there's a lapping and at the end of the process there's a lapping. That's why these things are so good. That's one of the reasons people talk about, you know, as soon as you get the barrel home, you clean it, you know, you wipe it down, you patch it up, you, you get that material out of there that may have been left because you don't want, you know, there's something in there, chip of metal, so anything small. It could be microscopic really in a lot of ways, like you barely see it, but it's in there, you know, it's hiding in a groove. Well, you don't want the bullet to come through and then damage it. And so you do a quick little initial cleaning to get that stuff out. Then you go to the range, you know, clean it the night before. Then you go to the range and shoot it as normal. I don't do a break-in. We've already talked about that. Then when you get home, you clean it. All good. So clean before, clean after. That's your break-in. Then you can go on from there and you can immediately go into your load develop. Now, the only caveat to that is... Some of these calibers, and I've seen it in my 6mm hardcore, my my 6 Creedmoor gain twist barrel, it sped up around the 200 round mark. So it went from like uh, 3070 to 3150 speed wise, you know, and it took about that 200, then it leveled out and it was all good. So there, you got to be on the lookout for that, that speed change. Now, I, I haven't noticed it in 308s and things like that, but I have noticed it in the 6 millimeter, And it may not be that drastic, a full 100 feet per second. It may be 50-75, but it could be enough to have an effect, you know. So that's why you do the pre and post cleaning and, and, and all that. But, I mean, break-in isn't going to change that. Doing one and shoot, two and shoot, three and shoot. (laughs) I just got into a thing. I was cranky this morning, hadn't had my coffee. Some guy was on, and there was a break-in discussion on Sniper's Hide. It was uh, pretty comical. This guy came on and said, you know, my go-to bench-resty gunsmith guy shoots two rounds with motor oil in the barrel. It's like, dude, what kind of voodoo weird shit is that? I mean, I get it. It's kind of like, a, and I posted a, a YouTube vid after I said, you know, this voodoo bullshit. I posted a YouTube vid of the the myth-busting searing steak, you know, searing the meat to keep the juices in. And they, they have a bunch of videos on YouTube that, you know, it's a big myth that if you sear the steak first, then put it on the grill and cook it, that you'll keep the juices in there. It's all a product of heat and not this quick sear on either side you're not creating this thing so the only thing i can think the is the guy's like a go-to bartland you know gunsmith type of guy is he's looking to put himself back in the equation you, you know i'm doing something different than the other person and that's why my barrels are good it's not that he's using a bartlin which you know kind of gives you the edge to begin with it's that you know shooting two rounds through it with some motor oil which, you know, like the equivalent of a cutting fluid that goes through there for like, you know, how many hours of that barrel's life is going to make a difference with stainless steel. I mean, I you know, I don't know what the heck, if you, if you shot around with the heat and seared oil into a stainless steel barrel, I, I really can't see you searing in the flavor of a bullet. Uh, oh, because I, I mean, I just never noticed it, but whatever. You know, several people have come on and said, they they they've tried it both ways. A lot of people now are going out and trying this both ways. They've broken barrels for years. Now they're not breaking in barrels because we're talking about it so much, and they can't see a difference. And that's usually how it works. Okay. So the idea of like you know baking it in with some motor oil just seems weird to me. I I, I fail to see the why. Why would you do that? You know what is that really doing? That you're going to sear a barrel. I mean, I guess if you're using a synthetic motor oil, there could be some nanotechnology in there that they're using nowadays that may impregnate the metal. But I mean, with a bullet going through and, you know, kind of coming in and that, you know, that dissimilar thing, I'm not sure if it works the same that way. But I mean, you probably have to go to a, a motor person and talk pistons and bearings and seals to find out what that's doing but i don't know i just think it's an unnecessary step of voodoo that we're 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 playing with and and it's just an unnecessary part of the game that that we still have to deal with these myths and legends from days gone by um you know so that brings me to another point so jim boatwright posted this thing on hyper stabilizing bullets And so then yesterday I was talking to Gus because Gus helps Jim a little bit with these articles uh, that you'll see. And and, and Jim will reference Gus and so on. And and Gus and I had to have a conference call yesterday. So we were talking at length, mostly about Hitler and Argentina, but a little bit about ballistics and his software cold board. So after I went and I'm running my numbers through because I'm shooting that short 7-twist 260. And I'm getting good results out of it. And so I started to play with the stabilization stuff, okay. And Colbor has analytic features. It's really robust. It's kind of like the equivalent of that two hundred dollar Applied Ballistics big program you can get, where it you know it's an analyzer. It does all these things. Colbor has the same thing. It's super robust. Um, desktop. If you're a Windows person. I highly recommend spend the 135 bucks, get ColdBore, stick it on the desktop, even if you don't use it in the field, but to print the charts. Because we were talking about that today, doing the charts. And I printed a bunch of charts and they're money. You can do this all from the comfort of your room, your house, print a chart for your arm bars, for your data book, and never have to worry about software in your phones in the field. And ColdBore is really robust. So... I found with this seven-twist barrel that the BCs are not right, and you've got to true that BC. If I have to go just muzzle velocity alone, and this particular load I had data for, it wasn't the one you saw in the pictures with the crayons, it was a Copper Creek 136 load that I used down at core um, for my AI-260. And so I shot it out of this Tika. And they they work. They are lights out. They're really good. Now muzzle velocity measured twenty seven seventy five, but when you go and put it into any software, the only way to get it to work if you use the and even using Lapua's because I'm using a one thirty six CNR, even using Lapua's Doppler data, you got to go to twenty eight fifty in order to get it to line up. That's the only way the numbers will match. Okay, there. So I said all right, let me use cold bore. There's a there's a, a couple things going on in the analyzer and one of them is BC from drops and times of flight and different things like that. So I can pull I can take my known data and I want to true my BC at 800 yards, 1000 yards. And that's what I did yesterday playing with the software. If I did it that way at the thousand yard mark. It gave me a new BC of 0.68. Okay, now the BC on the box kind of thing from Lapua is a 0.545. Now, I've used 0.588 like in my AB stuff, my Kestrel. I know I've used the 136 and I'm right around a true number of 588. So let's stick with 590 okay, with 590 on a 136 CNR at this 2,800 feet per second mean number, I still have to play with that muzzle velocity, okay, a lot more than I really want to, so we're talking 75 feet per second just to get me in the ballpark, but through cold bore, if I put my original muzzle velocity in, it will line up with 0.68, now, if I do a little bit of both and balance that true, which I did today, um, I found if I go like 0.625 in 2,800 feet per second, even, I get a nice balance even beyond that thousand because I do have data for that particular. Sorry, somebody's at the door. And, and little man is, is a hardcore watch guy, man. He's all about it, he's on top of everything. So, again, I'm uh, going back to this. Um, so. I went at that 2,800 feet per second. If I retruded around and played with it, I got a, a 6 to 5. And you got to wonder if that overstabilizing it and reading what Jim's talking about in his article, if it doesn't kind of clean up that BC to a sweet spot. Now, here's where I go with Colbor. There's a spin and stability calculator where I found out, and I played with it, there's two methods there. There's Miller, which almost everybody uses, and there's Greenhill. Okay? If I go to Miller, I'm overstabilized in a seven-twist at my current muzzle velocity. Or I take that back. If I go to 2,900, 2,950, so at 150 more feet per second, go to 2,950 with a seven-twist barrel in a 136 CNR. I'm overstabilized in the first almost full third of flight, which is a no good for me. I mean, I'm not going to sacrifice that and overspin it there. However, if I bring it back to where I am at that 2,800 to 2,900, I have a window, 100 feet per second window. I'm fully stabilized via Greenhill. I'm overstabilized Miller, but fully stabilized Green Hill. And the thing is, it stays fully stabilized a heck of a lot farther. So it kind of talks about that, that where you can cross the line. And what I'm seeing is it's about 150 feet per second over crosses the line. So again, it's twist velocity, twist velocity, right? So I need to stay from 2,800 to 2,900 feet per second out of this barrel. With the 260. That gives me great results. Now, here's the thing it's increased this BC dramatically, like huge. Okay, instead of, man, you know, instead of, now, again, I've talked about this quite a bit. We're looking at a a 300 yard BC average. I'm working to true it at 800 yards to 1,000. And what I'm finding with this is that I'm going a full magnitude over. And, and how I did this is we were talking about the DC, the DK factor in both cold bore and field firing solution. How much should you adjust that before start tweaking full, you know real world values? And Gus said 10%. So if you have to tweak your DC factor over 10%, Well, now you need to go and start truing your BC next. And I cranked a a huge magnitude over that in DK, DC, and it didn't line up my curve. So when I went into truing the BC and brought my DK back down to, to mean, then it worked. So that BC, I found that happy medium was adding 25 feet per second in my actual muzzle velocity and then going to 625 on the bc and now i got a perfect curve i mean out to distance and it's money on both ends so i mean it goes to show that these utilities and field firing solution has it and cold bore has it to true your bc up now it's not perfect although gus and i talked about this that the, the truing the bc there there is some really you know it's close it's not great but it's Better than the, the alternative, having to guess and trial and error, right? I mean, you can you can say, okay, if it told me point six eight and I ended up at point uh, six two, then there's something you can kind of work with. Take you know, take a 0.05 out of your number, and you should be pretty darn good because I'm point six 0.625, So if I was 0.30, you know, yada yada yada, numbers uh, back and forth that if I, if I come off of cold boars number, uh, because it, you know, it, 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 it only can give me so much, um, that I, I, I reached success and then it was a minor bump in muzzle velocity. 25 feet per second can easily be an error factor. So I, I'm fine with that. And this trued this whole thing up to my system, my numbers look strong. My, I posted the the the, the Miller and Greenhill thing, and it's amazing how everything lines up, but the main points of both methods, because it was saying where Miller was saying my twist rate should be eight and a quarter, and uh, Greenhill was saying my twist should be like seven and a half. All the other data was was the same, but then you know, like I said, with that BC number, that really brought that BC up there pretty damn high which w- 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 was kind of impressive so um again it- it's 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 barrels you know barrels bullets and matching this stuff up and then putting it into our software i you know i i hate to kind of go into stuff that's like trial and error this way in in cold War definitely makes life easier when it comes to that, but there there is so much that goes into this. Uh, you know, I got to look at the temps. I got to look at different things. Oh, and the other thing, and I'm really going to have to do something big about this. The wind is crazy wrong, except in cold bore. Cold bore matched up my wind with this true data. That was the other thing. That was super important here. Cold matched up my wind when I went into JBM with that uh, 2850 and it matched my drops up pretty well out to 1125 yards, drops matched. My win was double. Almost across the board, it was double. At the shorter ranges, it was point at 500 and 600, it was like point two off, but it grew to a half mil. So. I used the half mil, and I had all this data written down, and and, and so I'm actually going to be doing some wind stuff. I'm looking at it. I'm going to get tricky with wind. Wind's going to be my focus, man, because this is where they're dropping the ball, and and I got it in black and white now. It's it's impossible to argue this because I'm using the the wind charts and the DA charts for drop in Colborne. I'm printing this stuff for my arm bars and everything, and I'm going to go hard copy like that. This wind was spot on with this trued up. Okay. When I went to I went to applied ballistics online and I did the same thing with his stuff online. I went to JBM online and when I matched up my drops, my wind was still off. They wanted 1.2 mils of wind. I used .6. Okay? And then when I went down, like I said, it all showed this. This wind was amazingly different. And and I put in the right data for everything. 6 miles an hour was my velocity. And I got a chart here, right here, where I was at that 0.6. And I, I mean, it's it's amazing just how far off this really was. Um, like I said, JBM here at 11.25 is 1.2. And I've seen this. this is This is that part of the equation that nobody's really mentioning because everybody only talks about the drops. The elevation. Hey, how's my elevation line up? I'm point one off here and point one off here. What about the wind, man? The wind's the D- W T F. Winds first. We're 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 a full magnitude off with this stuff. So, and putting on Spindrift and Coriolis made it worse. I turned it off and actually lined everything up better. So. I'm really going to hyper-focus and look at this win moving forward. And probably now that I finished this, I, I got to get the front page of the damn site done, the blog part. But now that the main part of the software is done on the forum and I know I'm in a happy place, my permissions are pretty much set. I'm going to be writing some articles and posting some examples of wind. We got spring coming up now. Our wind here has been nuts anyway. I've gone out twice and had like, you know, load development days almost ruined by 18 to 25 mile an hour winds. You know, because you can't do much beyond 100 with the dang thing without the wind throwing everything around. So I'm going to use that wind, that really strong stuff to our advantage to talk about this. Because I really think that's where where we're getting to. That's why everybody wants fast and short. Beyond the, the drops, it's the drift. And so if I can get this flushed out using cold bore, and, and like I said, it's the closest one. I'm running everything. Uh, I, I'm going between cold bore, JBM, and AB. And I'm using all three of those. And, and I like JBM because it's not cluttered with a lot of stuff. I use the simplified. I'm not using the one with the spin drifties and stuff. I'm just using the straight trajectory. A, B, I'm turning that stuff off. Like I said, if I turn it on, it tends to go in the wrong direction for me, but I do play it both ways. I turn it on, I look. I turn it off, I look. And whichever one's closer without tweaking more, I stick with that. And 75% of the time, it's off. So, you know, I'm not going to try to do that. And so this was another interesting point of that drift that I'm seeing less drift I'm seeing sustained drop, or better, more consistent drop, I guess. It's more of a um, gradual than a dramatic. I'm not seeing hard fall-offs. And it's funny, with the BC, back near original, you see a crazy fall-off. So like my 800 and 900 yard were exactly one mil apart from each other. If you look at it, it these with the BC where it's supposed to be, my drop-off is usually... Closer to like 1.2 they add instead of that solid one because you're getting on that backside of the curve is how the software looks at it time of flight wise. And so it starts adding a little bit extra to that drop. So instead of going one mil every 100 yards at eight and nine, it's like 1.2. Well, this rifle shooting one. And I think part of that overstabilized spin is where it is. But again, if you're adding too much velocity in, you're now overstabled and you and you risk a problem. You risk jacket failure, you risk shifting leads, you risk inconsistency because we're not using solids. Here's the caveat. James Boatwright's hyperstabilizing bullet discussion is with solids. I'm talking jackets. So you have to find that balance like i talked about of muzzle velocity and for me it's a 100 feet per second window i have between 28 and 29 where i know i'm not going to hurt the bullet and i'm helping my bc and my stabilization if i go over the line to 150 feet per second more i i'm positive i'm going to hurt the bullet a one th- a th- a lapu is tends to have a thicker jacket the CNRs are really good they're not jump sensitive and that's why I shoot a lot of CNRs. Um, they're not jump sensitive. They're, they're not, um, uh, what do you call it, thinner jackets. So I don't see the variations with them. So to me, that's a good thing. Hornaday's the same way. I haven't had any problem with primes. I mean, I'm, I'm shooting pretty good twist rates with a 130 grain bullet with my prime ammo, right? And I got my speeds up and the whole thing and I don't see any downside to using... A, a faster twist with a hundred and thirty grain bullet. So there, there's a, there's a plus to be said for those Europeaners with a little thicker jacket technology. And I know talking with Jim at Prime, he was saying they were investing Ruag and all those guys. Norma were talking a lot about jacket tech. So that's definitely something for us to 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 look at where we are here. I I mean I know what a podcast and us just talking about this, but. I want to encourage you to go out and do some of your own testing. You have the means to get a barrel or you have this stuff. And this is why I I kind of advocate the gain twist. Because we're we're not deforming and, and risking hurting the bullet and skidding it on these fast twists. A lot of people like to use that skidding comment. But at the same time, I can get that spin up where I want without having the velocity damage that other people are seeing. You know... It's, it's the balance we spoke about. If you got velocity, you can back off a little on your spin. If you don't have velocity, you increase that little bit of spin. So uh, this, you know, brings me into an, and it was a quick question, but we'll go into it. That, sh- you know, we were always kind of going with the 308s, what we can do with shorter barrels, right? Everybody knew where 26 and 24 were, well, now we're finding, you know, like 22 was optimal with a 308. You got sort of the best balance between speed and in and, and accuracy in the whole thing. It's kind of that, you know, Houston warehouse, 21 and 3 quarter. Well, 22 to me seems like a really great place to be with a 308. And you know, especially to if you use a suppressor. It it's it's that great middle ground for still having velocity at a at thousand yards, but not overdoing it. Different powders, you can you can make up the speed like that two thousand MR. But now we bring it back another step. So we're going to go and switch velocity. But we're also going to go and play with twist a little bit. So if you want to do an 18-inch barrel, do like a 1 and 9. you know. And, and I do 1 and 10. And to me, 1 and 10 is a great little middle ground. But you can't go 1 and 9 and and still be in it. I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on the 108s. I know they found some really good results with 108. I'm not quite sold on it. I had one... And I saw short range flyers. Um, you know, it was it was a it it just didn't make me happy, and so I I equate that to the twist. So I don't know, but tens have always been great for me, and and that's where I I I want to bring this conversation. So I hope you guys are enjoying it, man. I know it kind of gets techie and wonky, and and we're talking about this stuff. But I I am out playing with it. I am crunching some numbers while it's fifteen degrees and snowing out as it's been all week here. So we're we're looking at all these things and we're, you know, we're kind of fireside chatting it up and and, and doing it that way just to show you where my head's at. It's sort of like you're as I'm playing with these things, you're getting to see my thought bubbles. And and this is where my head's going when it comes to these different elements of shooting. You know, better bullets, better barrels, better powders, right? Better technology for building this stuff, better gunsmithing. All that's lending to our increased ranging, our better accuracy, and our speed improvements and things like that. So, you know, it... It is a collection of all this. It's not just one thing is a magic solution. You know, overspin it will be great. Well, yeah, okay, you can only overspin it to a certain extent. There's a window there. You know, then what bullet you choose when you do overspin it is going to matter. Solids are a better choice than a jacket. A thicker jacket's going to be better than a thinner jacket. You know, you're we're starting to get into that bench rest, you know, where they're they're sorting by bullet and spin and balance and all that. Without doing it, we're, we're more kind of looking at best practice in, in in you know, rule thumb-ish, like these work better. For me, it's Cinar, you know, or Hornaday and because and they're a little bit thicker and better in that end. And, you know, I'm not doing 140s and 142s and 147s. I'm going 136s, 130s, 123s. And I'm bringing my speeds back up. And, you know, I'm getting it out of the barrel quicker that way. Quicker and faster. So it's less lock time, right? Because there's a time. When trigger presses, that's not the only lock time. The lock time is for that thing to get out of there too. So I'm playing with kind of speeding that up because our game is starting to become into that cross a silhouette, right? We're positional, guys. A lot more than we were prone. Especially if you're shooting PRS or NRL. You're, 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 you're a positional shooter. The quicker you can get that bullet out of there, the less influence you're going to have on it. And that's why I'm backing my weights and speed down. Now, if I'm in the prone, I'm going to shoot far and I'm going to do that. Well, then you can go heavy. That's going a little slower. That's going to float out there. But remember, it's going to take a little longer for it to get out of the barrel. So you got to look at that 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 milliseconds, that oh the nodes in there, in the milliseconds. There's charts for that. On how fast that thing's gone, and if you're shooting NRS or NRL or PRS this year, faster is going to be a little better for you. Drop your weights down a little and see how that works for you. So, something to think about. It's where my head's at today, and I just wanted to put this out there uh, so I can get with Mike, and and we can we can do a a dual use one. But I wanted you guys to have a little weekend edition of a Frank talking there. I don't know. Some of you guys were talking about commutes and drives and truck drivers and all that stuff. But if you can't listen to this, you know, today or tomorrow, tonight or tomorrow, you got at least got um, Monday morning and stuff. But again, I I appreciate it. Um, Keep them questions coming. Uh, We are going to address some of the guys. Mike and I were going back and forth um, looking at the Podbean app questions. And I know he's contacting some guys directly. Uh, Question came up with some of the disabled guys. We got a solution for you, dudes, man. We're going to sort you out so stand by for that if you know somebody who's who's a disabled vet or just straight up disabled shooter who 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 can still get out there and shoot but has some limitations get a hold of mike man get on the everyday sniper pod bean and email them and talk to mike about it we're gonna we're gonna sort you guys out good um i I don't i don't want to you know uh, there, there's no reason why you guys can't be out there doing this. You look at the uh, guy down at Rifles Only, no legs on Sniper's side. He's in the wheelchair shooting PRS matches. Okay, you can do it. It's it's definitely out there. He's he's got people that'll carry a chair and move him around a little bit. So you got you kind of need a team with you if you were gonna go to that extent. But it's not out of the question. Okay, you can definitely do that kind of stuff. In and it's something to look at. All righty, well uh, that's that's quick, down and dirty for you guys. I just wanted to make sure you had something and keep this thing flowing. I, I'm I'm psyched. I want a thousand, you know. Once we get a thousand, I'm gonna be screaming for fifteen hundred. I ain't gonna be satisfied. But uh, yeah, you guys, you guys have been fantastic with the questions and and with the support. Share this stuff around. Come on over to Sniper's Hide and ask your questions. If if you want to follow up, honestly, go to Sniper's Hide. I know you got, and, and I want to address this really quick. I know you guys want to hear directly from me. I, I, I've i given you to make your own sort of buying decisions. I'm trying to educate the public so you're a better informed consumer rather than defaulting for, to me. So if I press back against you to say, what do you like? What do you want? What are you going to do? It's not that I'm being dismissive. I know I come off harsh. I get it, man. Yeah, that's how I grew up. You know, what the fuck? It, it it it's there. There it was never was a free ride, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you gotta remember some. I have back home in Connecticut and shit. I had thirty three first cousins, man. My mom's one of sixteen. Okay, we're we're all Italian guys in Bridgeport and all that stuff, and right outside New York and everything. I'm not from Birmingham, Alabama. I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. You know, Bridgeport might as well. It, the Bridgeport's what people think about Brooklyn in a lot of ways. Brooklyn's m- mellowed over the years. Bridgeport's now become that sort of like top of the food chain, where it, it, it it's got a worse kind of crime rate than Chicago. You know, when you look at everything going on in Chicago, Bridgeport's worse. So if you want to know where my attitude comes from, that's why I grew up, man. We were always doing this shit. It's it's not. I mean, that's just the way it was. We fought each other. <laughs> you know, I remember a little kid, little kid story here. It's, it's kind of funny. We had a, a, one of my cousins. She was getting married and um we were going to meet the kid for the first time and we were all little like 12 or 15 years old whole bunches of us outside playing you know we didn't have X uh, xboxes and shit get outside you little rats and uh and um so he's walking up this hill and my aunt had a big hill up in her front yard and we hid in the bushes and jumped the guy and broke his leg you <laughs> know we all just laughed you know it's was like you know, we, we weren't above, you know, wrecking stuff on people and walking away going, well, you should have bought something better. <laughs> and you know, oh, gee, your car broke. It's like because we'd smash it, you know. Oh, gee, your car broke. That's too bad. And it was look nice, you know. So that's where the attitude I don't like I said, it's not personal. It's just I'm trying to help you educate yourself, be better, you know, uh, be a, a more informed consumer. What satisfies your shooting needs? What's going to satisfy you? What reticle works for you? Like scopes, you know, like, you know, what rifle questions were coming in on the Tikas, the Begaras, the Hawas, the Rugers, they're, they're all really good. You know, I, I do have an order, you know, I'd probably go Tika Ruger, Bagara Hawa and that order, if I had to look at them down the line, but it, it's, it's, it's something that you should look at the features, man. You should understand what these features are bringing to the table, what makes a Tika a little bit better than a Hawa? You know what? Where are we going on? What's the what's the uh you know what's the bolt throw? Is it ninety? Is it sixty? Is it seventy? You know what's with the long action, short action, mid action? You know what can you do with that magazine technology? Uh, 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 a Tika's mag as it is is really expensive. You put it in a chassis that uses an AICS, you immediately saved half your money on mags you know, that kind of decisions, stuff that you need to look at. Where do you want to go with things like that? Is it M-Lock? Is it this? Is it key mod M-Lock? What what has more accessories for you that you want to use? So all these things come into play, like, you know, the hinges on the folding mechanisms. Is it a button push to lock and unlock or button push only to unlock it? Is it you know, adjustable cheek piece that's amber or is it adjustable cheek piece designed for a right-handed shooter only? Or do you got to take it all apart to switch it? You know, is does it shake loose when you shoot it a bunch? Is it too tight to adjust? You know, some people don't like the back part of the Ruger, so they switch them to the Magpul. So what we're we're trying to do here is is push you to think about this rather than saying, Frank's, you know, rescue me throw me a life raft. Well, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to string you along to have you swim a little closer. Then eh, I'll throw you a life raft, you know, but you got, you got to at least swim a little. It, it used to be in the Marine Corps, you get it when we did the pool, you know, they, the first thing you do, you show up boat boot camp. It was at a 10 meter board or something like that. You You walk over to the board, the diving board, you walk out, you drop in the water. If you swim, you go to one side. If you sink and and they got to rescue you, you go to the little end, you know? And what they'd always do is they had that pole with like the tennis ball on the end. And they would put the pole out there. If you pulled the pole, they whacked you with the ball and they had you drop it and got it away from you. Like you couldn't pull them. They had to pull you. And so they were really harsh with guys, you know? Like if you couldn't swim, you you were kind of like, if you panicked, you're screwed. They're going to let you kind of, they're going to let you go down a little bit until they get somebody to come out there. It wasn't like a free ride. And that was a, that's a Marine Corps upbringing too. You know, I enlisted when I was 17. I went in when I was right when I turned 18 and everything. And, you know, they didn't say, oh, gee, I can't do it. Sorry, guy. You know, oh, okay, don't worry about it, Frank. You can't do that. No big deal, man. Oh, it's, it's all right. No, man, that's not how it works. You got to go do it make it work, dude, you know, I used to jump the sides a lot, like I, when I ran an O course type of thing, I knew I was smarter to go by the pole at first for the longer jumps, where I can kind of catch the telephone pole on the edge, and I can grab that, and then lift myself, and launch to the middle, and then go across, so for me, you know, little trick was, okay, run the edge a little bit on that O course, and not the middle, because it gave me sort of a a, a a safety line if I fell a little short because I was a shorter guy you know i there there's always that little bit of a lip and you can catch on the top of the pole pull yourself up to the next one and then get up on the side so it was like a kind of a double launch so there's all these you know little kind of cues that people don't always see but they exist man you, you, like i said it's it's not personal it's not harsh I get it. When I write, I I could be cranky and and all that shit, but yeah, it is what it is. All right, guys, have a great one. This has been Frank at Sniper's Hide with the Everyday Sniper. Uh, We'll get back together with Mike, and we'll get this sorted out. Sorry about Mr. Fuzz there barking, but it is what it is. (laughs) All right, man. Later.